Turn to John chapter 12, verse 20. John 12, 20. We'll read to verse 26. So let's uh, stand and read the Word of God. Now there was some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if, he, if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Lord, we only have uh, six verses here, but as we've known in Genesis House, it doesn't matter how many verses we have, there's always a ton of application in each verse. And I just pray, God, that through your Holy Spirit, that we uh, learn to understand what these six verses are saying. Not for just knowledge's sake, but so that we, we may live them out in our daily walks with you. Uh, knowledge um, puffs up and love builds up. So we're looking just, Lord, to gain wisdom here and uh, so we can live our lives to honor you personally and in, in publicly as well. Uh, there's many of us here today who need encouraging, many of us here who need strengthening, many of us who may need convic conviction over certain areas of our lives. Whatever your word has to say, uh, I don't know where people are at, um, only you do, and I just ask God that your word will um, yeah, just uh, penetrate their souls and hearts today. So pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few introductory comments because we haven't uh, looked at the passage for a couple of weeks. I haven't been in John for a couple of weeks. You'll remember from the previous sermon in verses 12 to 19 that uh, the scene in Jerusalem at the time was Passover. Huge crowds had gathered in the city to commemorate God's freeing them from Israel out of slavery. And we saw various people coming. People from Bethany had come who had witnessed the uh, raising of Lazarus. We had people from Jerusalem who, who were locals that were there, also who had seen the raising of Lazarus in Bethany. And so we had these huge crowds, also pilgrims uh, from verse 12, these large crowds had come to the feast from all over uh, the known Mediterranean world to come worship. So there's, this, there's, there's tens and tens of thousands of people gathered here. Now, and then remember too, this was the, a Jewish feast. So it makes sense that the people from Bethany, from Jerusalem, and these pilgrims who were identifying with Judaism had come all the way there because it was a Jewish feast. But there was one group that John has not mentioned up to this point, and that were Gentiles. Gentiles. And so John introduces us to these Gentiles in verse 20 because what's interesting is the Gentiles are also coming to this Jewish feast. So let's read verse uh, 20 together. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. We spoke about this briefly last week in our Berean study we had here. 
But uh, when you think of Greeks in our culture, I would say, what's a Greek or who's a Greek? You'd say, I know, they're from Greece. Okay? That's how we define Greeks. That's not how the New Testament uh, always defines Greeks. Um, Greeks uh, could have come from Greece, but typically that's a reference to someone who's a Gentile. Or a lot of times they use the word God-fearer, a God-fearer. These are people who were not Jewish, yet were attracted to the morality of the Judaism, and they identified with the Jewish faith. So they would have identified with aspects like abstaining from sexual morality, which was huge in their pagan culture, and they would have rejected idolatry to worship the God of the Jews, which was this monotheistic approach. So they come from paganism, idolatry, and so if you're a God-fearer, a Gentile, this kind of Greek person, you've now just come to adopt the worship of a monotheistic God, or this Jewish God. And of course, the only true and one living God. So you see these men, and uh, they've come here to worship at the Passover. And what's interesting is that if you've ever looked at uh, diagrams of the temple, and we have looked at them briefly over the, over the course of the year, you will notice that there's a the court of the Gentiles. It's the outer court, so there was a place for Gentiles to come and worship. They couldn't go past the court of Gentiles, they couldn't get into the inner, inner sanctuaries. But nonetheless, within the temple, there's provisions for the Gentiles to come and worship in there. And it was the biggest, actually, part of the, of the temple. So they were, they were, the God-fearers would come and, and, and worship at the Passover in that area of the temple court. Now, one distinguishing feature of these guys was um, they didn't get circumcised. So uh, if a proselyte was somebody that would uh, get circumcised, and therefore if you were a Gentile who became circumcised, you'd become a part of the covenant people of God, which would make you a, um, a proselyte as a Gentile. But if you're a God-fearer, you didn't get circumcised. But you still identified with Judaism. So, again, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 would be a fantastic example of a god here, And we saw that God saw this guy as a legitimate follower of him. The most important characteristic of these Greeks, in verse 20, is their desire to see Jesus. You see that in 21? It says, These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began asking him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, we don't know... Uh, how they knew about Jesus, um, perhaps at previous feasts, other Passovers, or other Feast of Tabernacles, something like that, they've come and they've either heard him teach, or maybe they've witnessed him do a miracle. Perhaps they were recipients of his miracles, who knows? Or maybe it was just through the grapevine they've heard about him. Regardless, we don't know how they know about him, but clearly he's left an impression on them, because when they arrive in town, they want to meet him. And again, it doesn't really matter how they found out about him, the key is their eagerness to see him. Now that's important too, because upon their arrival to Jerusalem, they don't want to see the religious leaders. No interest in meeting the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, doesn't even appear like the first place they go is the temple. They get to town and they want to see Christ first. Somehow they uh, think their best chance of for finding Jesus was to go to Philip, one of his disciples, Again, John doesn't tell us why Philip. Uh, the commentaries I read suggested a couple of reasons. One, Philip is a Greek name, not a Jewish name, so they suggested because he was Philip, a Greek name, maybe the, the Greeks could identify with him because he was Gentile. That's a speculation. Other people think that he probably spoke Greek because he, he was from Bethsaida, and, which, um, and he was, uh, that was uh, um, in Galilee. And so people in the northern part would often speak Greek. 
And so they thought, well, maybe he, he could have spoken Greek as well, and so they identified with him. Uh, who knows? That's some, those are some thoughts. But regardless, again, whatever they, whatever they thought about it, they figured Philip was their best opportunity for, for meeting him. And so they, uh, they go and ask him to bring him to Jesus. So upon receiving that request, Philip, what's he do? He goes and gets Andrew. <laughs> why does he go and get Andrew? Why does he hesitate? Like, why not go and take him to Jesus directly? Again, John doesn't tell us, but we have a couple suggestions. Um, first of all, Andrew, we know from John chapter, in the beginning of John, I think it's John chapter 2, I believe. I have to look that up. But I think they're from, we've learned it from the same town. So they're, they're, they're buddies or whatever from the same town. And so he just thinks, well, if I'm going to identify with Andrew because he's from the same place as me. And, and so therefore, I'm going to get him to weigh in. Um, but perhaps he went and got Andrew because of something else that's interesting in Scripture. And we find this in uh, Matthew 10, verse 5. Basically, Jesus had taught the disciples that their ministry was to center around the Jewish people and not the Gentile people. Look at this. He gave the 12 instructions and he said, he set them up with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. In the beginning of their ministry, Jesus' ministry priority was the own Israelite people. And as people in Israel and in Jerusalem and all the area became um, Christians through receiving the Messiah, then their responsibility would to, would to be go to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles and spread the gospel. And then those people would become identified with the Jewish, with, uh, with the Jewish uh, Messiah, which was Jesus. So again, they had a ministry priority order. It wasn't that the Gentiles were unloved, the Samaritans were unloved and not cared about. There was an order of priority in ministry. And so perhaps when these Greeks come and they say to, to uh, Philip, we want to see Jesus, he's like, do I bring them to Jesus or do I continue with this mission that Jesus gave us three years ago? So these, this is a speculation. I have no idea if that's why he went and got Andrew, but it's worth to think about uh, in anyhow. And we see it in the gospel when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts. Uh, guess who gets the, the Holy Spirit first? The Jewish people. Who gets the Holy Spirit second? The Samaritan people. And who gets the Holy Spirit third? The Gentile people. So the ministry priority in terms of receiving the Holy Spirit of God wasn't exactly this order. So just something to think about. And again, I'm not going to die on that hill if you think this is not the right uh, reasoning. Um, but there you go. At least we're farther ahead, I hope. <laughs> so regardless of the decision, though, and the reasons for hesitating, when they did come to Jesus, they did tell him about his request. We see that in verse 22. After they come and tell him, um, they say, it says here, Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. So Jesus did clearly receive the request. <clears throat> so, what did Jesus think of the request? Well, look what he says in verse 23 to 26. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he who hates his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the follower will honor him. One thing that's surprising about Jesus' answer is this. Notice he doesn't respond to Philip and Andrew's request to meet the Greeks. If I came to you and said, oh, hey, uh, Rob, uh, Jeff wants to meet you, you think the natural conclusion would be when? How can we make this happen? 
Right? Where? Like, what's going on? And Jesus does none of that. He doesn't say, yeah, guys, tell them I'll meet them in an hour by the pool of Bethesda. Or, hey, I'm 45 minutes, meet me in the west side of the court of the Gentiles. None of that. His answer and response is to go into what he says in 23 verse 26. And he tells them, in response to the Greeks' uh, desire to meet him, that his hour has come, and it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Jesus had used this language before in the presence of the disciples. Remember at the wedding at Cana, Mary, his mom, comes to Jesus and he says to him, We've run out of wine. And Jesus says to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, Jesus in the temple, while he is teaching in John chapter 7, verse 30, uh, we see the religious leaders there trying to arrest him. And it says, No one laid his hands on him because at that time his hour had not yet come. Here, when the Greeks arrive to see him, he says, uh, the hour has come for, my, for the Son to be glorified. Of course, in context, we can see that the hour he's talking about is the reference to crucifixion. So in the past ministry, in the last couple of years, every time his hour had come, <coughs> the time for crucifixion was not yet. But now when the Greeks show up, the time is now. The time has come. So why? What's the change? I think it's a, this is, a, again, a very interesting. Based on the context, here we have the Jewish people proclaiming him as Messiah, and the Messiah was for the Jewish people. But we're going to see in like two, three days, them reject him. His own people are going to reject him, and his own people who are, who are worshiping him, calling him um, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is now later on going to basically say stone or not stone, kill him, crucify him. So we have the own Jewish people rejecting the Savior of the world, but here we have the Gentiles coming in now wanting to see the Savior of the world. And they want it seems they want to see him on legitimate terms. There's an actual genuine heart to want to know who Jesus is. They don't have any political agendas or nothing. I think it's a great picture here to say that this is a picture of the Gentile inclusion in God's, God's plan of salvation. The cross was not only for the Jews, but for Jesus to be the Savior of the whole world. And that's why when the, the Gentiles show up, he says, you know what? I can see now that the, the, the purpose for me coming is fully intact here. It's now time. Because now the Jews have heard, the Samaritans have heard, and now the Gentiles are legitimately wanting to see me. And Paul speaks of this, actually, in Ephesians 2, 14. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture here that Paul talks about. He says, uh, Christ himself is our peace. And he said, he made both Jewish people and those who are not Jews, in other words, Gentiles, one people. They were separated as if they were all, there was a wall between them, but Christ broke down that wall of hate by giving his own body. His purpose was to make the two groups of people become one new people in him, and in this way make peace. It was also Christ's purpose to end the hatred between the two groups, to make them in one body, and to bring them back to God. Christ did all this with the death on the cross. So the Gentiles show up, the Jews are there, everyone's there, all the crowds are around them, every people group is represented at the Passover. And Jesus says, now it's time for me to be glorified, because everybody, all nations, all peoples and all tongues are in Jerusalem at that time. So there was a purpose for the death, though. There was a purpose in the death. It was necessary, not only for the possibility of all people to be given the gift of eternal life, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, and language, 
um, he was going to show them that this was the legitimacy of his ministry through an illustration. And he makes an illustration to make the point that the death was necessary to provide people access to the Father. He says in 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I phoned Dave Panton, who's spoken here a few times. He's a great, he's a farmer. Like, you know, the, well, he's not a farmer, but he does a lot of agricultural stuff, and he lives in the land. He's got amazing fruits and vegetables, and he's pretty smart with this. So I phoned him, I said, explain this to me. What, the, what does this actually mean? So he talked about when a grain is planted in soil, and it's got like a shell. And then when the soil uh, gets in contact with the shell, based on God's um, uh, design, the shell starts to break away and die. But the life, sort of the life-giving organism inside, the life component within the, within the kernel, will then be exposed to the soil and then take fertilize and, and then grow and produce this massive harvest. So Jesus is saying, uh, just like a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can produce a, a huge harvest. Likewise, Jesus has to go to the cross, die, and as a result will produce a massive harvest. Because again, anyone who puts their, their faith, his faith in him and believes him to be the Messiah will ultimately get to join in this bountiful harvest and be part of the kingdom of God. Again, the disciples would have heard him say, talking about him being a, a suffering Messiah and heard him talking about a Messiah that had to die. And again, that would have been contrary to what they were expecting. They weren't expecting a Messiah who would suffer and die, but a, li a liberator from the Roman oppression. And so, um, again, Jesus is, uh, at the time is contradicting what they're hoping for and who he is and why he came. But Jesus is saying, there's a purpose behind my glorification. There's a purpose behind this power. And I need to die in order to bring all people into, the, uh, into a relationship with, Jesus, uh, with the Father. So interesting, it's kind of like a paradoxical statement, right? Because Jesus is teaching the most important law needed for the kingdom of God. That eternal life had to come through death. Right? It's a paradox. How can death produce life? But Jesus says, death has to produce life, just like a grain of wheat has to die in order to produce a bountiful harvest. So there's radical teaching from Jesus about death producing life. But it didn't stop there. Not only was the radical teaching that he had to die to produce life, a second death was going to be required. A second death. And that was from his followers. The followers had to die as well. He said, he who loves his life loses it, and he who takes his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. For me, this is the crux of the sermon, and we're going to spend the rest of our time on these two verses, because if you remember nothing from today um, up to this point, that's okay. But I want you to forget nothing from what I say from here on in. <laughs> Unless it's wrong, and then forget everything I say. Like, so, that's what we need the Holy Spirit's power. If I were to put a summary and statement to Jesus' words here in 20, uh, 25 and 26, I'd say this. What he's saying is this. Church, how we live in this world matters. How we live in this world matters. Listen, he who loves his life loses it, 
He who hates his life in this world keeps it to life eternal. How we live in this life is a matter of eternity. It's an eternal issue for us, how we live. We, and so, according to Jesus, if we love our lives, we destroy the very life we seek to gain. If, on the other hand, if we hate our lives, we come, it comes with an eternal reward, which is heaven. So since our eternal destiny depends on how we love our lives or hate our lives, it's an imperative that we know what Jesus is talking about here because he doesn't explain it further in verse 25. So for that, we need to go to other passages of Scripture to understand what he means by this. And there's multiple places. You can go to Mark, Matthew, Luke, any of, the God, of those three Gospels all have the same teaching. I chose to use Luke, but it's, it's a virtually identical wording in the other Gospels, okay? So, but look at Luke, look at Luke, <laughs> look at Luke 9, 23, 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The reason I really like this passage is, notice in verse 24, the phrasing of his words is, is almost identical to John 12, 25, right? In, 20, in 25, he says, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life will, will save it, or keep it. In Luke, he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's virtually the same language, but he doesn't use the word love and hate. So because it's the same language, we can see what, what he said previous to it to make him say this statement. And the linking word is the four. So four is a substantiation. So he's going to say, verse 23, da, 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 four, substantiation, this is how you save and lose your life. So we can take this passage and transfer it into John to see how we're to love and to hate our life in this world. And look what he says. If you want to save your life, or you want to uh, lose your life, you have to consider this thing. You have to consider this instruction. Are you willing to deny yourself on a daily basis Take up your cross and follow me. If the answer is yes, you, you hate your life in this world. If your answer is no, you love your life in this world. Again, he didn't mean this literally. It wasn't like the disciples were running around Jerusalem with crosses on their back and trying to get into houses and kind of shift their way through a door jam and sitting at the table and clanging into each other. It wasn't bad. It's not literal. Just like we're not to run around open soaps with crosses on our back trying to get through the crossbow lineups. He's basically saying it's a metaphorical statement, and we all, I think, understand that. But again, think of this. It's a powerful illustration. Under, if you're a Jew living in Roman rule, you understand full well what this means. You witness crucifixion on a regular basis. I mean, I was talking to Dan. I, I wish I paid more attention to his details in terms of the story, but he was saying that when he was studying for uh, something uh, recently, apparently there was some event where 2,000 people were crucified in one day or one week or something in Jerusalem. Like 2,000 lined the streets. The Romans were barbaric. If you're a Jerusalem person or a Jewish person, you'd see like thousands of people, like or hundreds of people, in that one event, like along the road. So when he says carry your cross here, this is. It's not like us when we're trying to make up what that looks like. They know what that looks like. That's a powerful illustration for them listening to this because they know that someone who's carrying their cross is headed to violent death. They're headed to violent death. And so Jesus is saying to them and saying to us, 
if you're going to be a follower of mine, you're going to need to take a position of, of violent death to your own self-desires and your own self-interests. You have to be willing to make a, say, a violent no to your own self-desires and self-interests and what the world tells you is the right thing to do in order to embrace a life of service and witness for Jesus Christ. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. In our culture, we have a phrase, a, a phrase that says, get a life, man, or get a life, woman. you need to get a life. What are we saying? You've got to try harder, do better. You've got to identify with the world, because if you do that, then you're going to be awesome, right? You pamper yourself, assert yourself, send up, you know, all these types of things. Look out for yourself, improve yourself. All these comments. Jesus says, if you do that, you will lose your life in this world. Well, lose this life for an eternity, I should say. But if we're willing to follow Jesus in this way, by, by taking up a cross daily and denying ourselves, we will, be, we will demonstrate a, a hate for our life in this world and be guaranteed life eternal. But here's what I want you to notice. This is really important. Notice that getting a life or hating your life is not a one-time decision. It's not a one-time decision. He says, he who denies himself and takes up his cross daily. I should have bolded that word daily. And the other key phrase is for my sake. <coughs> so it's not denying yourself in the way you think you should be denied. Like, like uh, you know, I'm going to starve myself today or I'm going to beat myself with a, with a rod to like punish myself or I'm going to call myself down and, or like be, try to be humble or whatever. This is not your own definition of, of uh, self-denial. This is a denial according to Jesus for his sake and his commandments and his teachings. But it's a daily thing, a daily thing. Now, I understand salvation starts in the moment. Every single person has to, at some point, deny themselves to the point that they receive the gift of salvation from the Lord. And everybody, at some point, surrenders their life to the Lord in a, in a, in a starting, uh, starting <coughs> moment, on a specific day, specific time. I get that. I'm not denying that. But that's not the mark of a Christian life. That's where you start. But Jesus says, listen, if you hate your life in this world, deny yourself, and daily follow me, you will guarantee yourself life eternal. So you can start off with a decision for Christ and then continue to love the world and you won't go to glory. You won't go to glory. Not according to this passage. How, it requires two deaths. The gospel requires two deaths. Jesus for you to bring you into the kingdom, but then the way you live after that matters to Jesus. Otherwise, there is no point in bringing this up and putting this in the passage here. So that means on a daily basis, a Christian, we have to continuously choose and embrace God's ways over and above our own interests and desires. And every day we're faced with multiple choices and various categories of life. And I'll give you an example of what I think this looks like for us then. Alright? So you come to, pretend you're standing on the, the path here at the crossroads. You're standing on the crossroads and you're at a T-junction. And there's two options for you. You either can go your way, which is to love your life to lose it, and head to the left, or you can love, you can love um, or hate your life and go God's way and embrace Jesus' plan by following Him, deny yourself, and gain life eternal. Those are the two options for us. There's one significant problem <laughs> or issue for us: we're all born or wired or programmed not to want to go down the yes route. 
We're all programmed and wired to want to resist God's way and go down the no route. Um, that, that in the New Testament, this call, we call this the flesh. There's the flesh's desires, and then there's, then there's the spirit's desires for our lives. And the flesh in the New Testament is not just the physical body, it's the, basically the totality of your mind, will, and emotion bent towards serving yourself. We all have it. And it's always in opposition to God. Now, here's what's interesting. This flesh does not disappear when you become a Christian. So don't, right? If When you're non-Christian, you have these desires to go in opposition to God. When you become a Christian, the flesh still exists. It still wants to go against God's design. That's why He gave us the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness in that area. But here's the point. It doesn't disappear just because we become Christians. And... If that might be new for some of you to think about, but I want to read you Galatians. Actually, let's turn to church. Uh, let's all turn to Galatians 5.16 and look at this in detail. Galatians 5.16. We're going to do 5.16 and 17. there, Galatians 5, 16, 17. Okay. <clears throat> but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may uh, not do the things that you please. Now, here's some key words in this passage to define the flesh, okay? Um, Notice that the flesh has desires in verse 16, right? It says, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So the, des the flesh desires to embrace your own self-interest and to not embrace God's. Notice also it wants to carry them out. So it's not that you just have desires. You actually want to carry them out. You want to live them out and embrace them, right? I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of your flesh. So if you don't walk by the Spirit, you will carry out or live out the desires of your flesh. Right? Next thing in verse 17, the Spirit is set in opposition to God. You see that? For these are in opposition to one another. And the last thing you want to notice is that these are things that you, you reason you might want to carry desires is because they please you. They offer, they offer you a promise. You see in the end of verse 17, so that you may not do the things that you please. So again, the flesh is very powerful. It has desires. They want to be carried out. They want to be lived out. They're in opposition to the Spirit of God that lives in you. And there's a way in which you want to carry these out so that they're pleasing to you. So the pull, the natural pull in your life is to not embrace Jesus in His ways and follow Him and deny yourself daily. The daily, re the daily reality is that you want to serve yourself and the, ser and the interest that you have inside. And so do I. Now you go to this cross, crossroads again. Here's the thing. God, when you stand here, God is not going to force you. Not going to force you to go left or right. He gives you the Holy Spirit to say, here's my way. But the decision is yours. It's not, God doesn't make you do, do it. Listen, that, in Luke 9, remember? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross it doesn't say this. Jesus will, make, will give you the power to deny yourself. 
and will give you the power to take up your cross daily. He gives you the Holy Spirit to, to say, here's my way, here's my way, but he will not force you. Because if he forces you, it's not real love. Love, is only, 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 love can only exist with complete freedom. And so the Spirit is a tremendous aid to us, but ultimately we have to crucify our own flesh and we have to be able to, to choose and embrace God's way. And again, there's a promise. He says, if you are willing to do this, you'll, get, you'll save your life to life eternal. Our eternal destiny depends on our obedience to the Lord. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, oh my goodness, what if I have Peter moments? What if I don't embrace God's ways in certain areas, and, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm just like, you know, on Monday I do this, and on Thursday I do this, and all this stuff. Listen, we all have Peter moments, we're all full of sin, and that's why Christ came, is to, is to deal with that. But what I'm not talking about is one-time events of sin. I'm not saying you're in eternal jeopardy if you sin here and you sin there. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is if you've embraced patterns of sin in your life that have not been broken, then, then you have to, this is a strong warning. And I'll show it to you again in verse, we'll go back to Galatians 5.16. Now go to, go to verse 19 and listen to this. Listen to this, about the patternistic sins, not once, not here and there, but patternistic things, known, things that you're known for. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are more immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, upwards of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And look at the bottom of verse, um, yeah, that, that, that's the key. It's practicing there. And that's why in, in verse 16, he calls it, if you walk by the Spirit. So the, the Christian life can be, is defined as a walk, which means it's a way of life. It's a way of practice. So he defines, he defines walking by the Spirit and practicing as the same thing. And we can either practice a life of righteousness according to Jesus' way, or we can practice a life uh, of bracing patterns of sin in opposition to Jesus' way. Again, so I'm not talking about one-time moments, because I would have been, uh, I've been in trouble just this week alone. <laughs> I don't stand before you today sinless this week, say, as a pastor, okay? But what I'm saying is, God is looking for patterns of sin in these categories that have been broken in us. So I want to speak to the kids and the teenagers, um, or those, yeah, the, the kids, the people heading for teenage years or the teenagers in, in a couple, one key area for God. Because I know this is mostly to the adults, like the older adults, but, you know, in the scriptures, one of the key areas for, for you is obedience to your parents. The only command to children uh, and under the authority of home is obedience to parents. That's the only command. And I want to talk about one specific category where I think that children really, and, and kids, like even teenagers, can get into uh, an issue with, with, uh, with their parents and obedience. And I call this the category of honesty. Honesty. You know, your mom and dad says, did you break that? No. And you did. Did you take that from so-and-so? No, and you did. Did you really say that? No, and you did. One of the key things in Romans chapter 1, God says, 
that his wrath came down and was poured out upon men for disobedience. And one of the categories listed there is children not obeying their parents. I'm not saying once a week. Like, I'm not saying, again, this is patternistic. Not, not that you won't have moments of disobedience. I'm saying you've embraced a pattern of life in your, in your, a walk in your life where you constantly rebel against your mom and dad. This is a patternistic thing. And Jesus says, if you love your life in this world, you will lose it. If you hate your life in this world, you will gain it to life eternal. Honesty, honesty, and to you know, obey your parents in this category for kids and teenagers is really important to God. <laughs> in, adult, in adults' lives, I mean, we have honesty issues too. But I think for honesty, where we get where we get into trouble as adults is like some of the you know some of the Romans one and Galatians uh, five stuff. You know, we 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 struggle. Have we embraced areas of patterns of anger? Are we known to have patterns of anger or patterns of gossip? We where we slander people behind their back, or especially in the area of sexual morality, where we've embraced patterns of um, unbridled lust or pornography or or, uh, you know, even like adultery and so on. But again, for adults, like this gossip, this anger, this sexual immorality, and there's, and there's other lists, I mean, within scripture that talk about these categories. Uh, I think of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a major one. And in Luke 9.26, Luke 9.26, uh, right after he says, take up your cross, deny, deny me daily, um, take up your cross and deny me daily, he says this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And our personal evangelism, our, our willingness to stand up for Jesus Christ is a, is a major important issue. After he talks about denying himself, taking up your cross and losing your life for his sake to save it, or yeah, hating your life to save it. He then talks about your association with Jesus. Are you proud of that relationship, or are you ashamed of that relationship? Again, I've had Peter moments in my life. I've not been perfect in my ability to witness. I've shied away. I've shrunk away. I'm, I, I shamefully admit it. But again, it's Jesus is not defining me by that. He's saying, "Is your is a life pattern? Are you ashamed of me and my words? Whenever there, my name comes up, do you run for the hills? Whenever someone asks you a question, do you deny?" your existence with me, those kind of things, he says, you will, that's hating your, that's loving your life in this world and not losing it. Very important to Christ that we uh, consider these things. And if we do these, if we do hate our life in this world, it comes with a wonderful promise and reward. Going back to John 12, in verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, oh sorry, actually, yeah, I'll read the, the 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, the servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. My father will honor him. Now, ultimately, um, that honor will come, that honor will come in glory, eternal life. But I believe that honor comes in this lifetime as well. And I would call these the blessings from God. <coughs> and I'll share from you Proverbs chapter 2, verse 4. Those, those who embrace a pattern of walking in God's ways 
God acts as a, a, honors them in these ways. He's a protection to them. I'll read you Proverbs uh, 2, verse 4. He says, If, um, if you seek her as silver uh, and search for her as, as, as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of the Lord. Now here at the fourth note, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And here's the blessing. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. He guards the path of justice and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Here's the honor. He'll store up wisdom. He'll be a shield. He'll guard. He'll preserve. These are blessings from the Lord. These are honors to us when we walk in his ways. On the opposite side, if we love our life to the point of losing it, he says this, um, When the distress and anguish come upon you, they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my proofs, so they shall eat the fruit of their own way. Now that's Proverbs chapter 1, verses 29 and 31. So after he's saying, here's the fruit of eating your own way, Proverbs 1, chapter 2, he says, here's the blessings if you go God's way. So if you want to, if you want to go down the crossroads path and say no and pursue your own flesh, I promise you this, God will not, God will, um, you won't have the pro- promise of Proverbs. <laughs> because even Christian people, like, and I, I've experienced it in my own life, even Christian people, when I choose to go against God's way, I still eat the fruit of my own way. Again, and, and that's, again, in patternistic stuff, then we're in trouble. But again, we still eat the fruit, even potentially in, on a, a one-off sin here and there. So again, I hope I'm making it clear that I'm not trying to scare you to say, oh my goodness, I sinned this week, am I in trouble? I'm not saying that. But I am saying if you've embraced a pattern, embrace a pattern according to John 12, 25 um, and 26, that, uh, that may this be a, a good, strong warning. So what are some of the lessons we can learn? I'm probably just going to repeat myself again, like I've said over and over to the servant, but I think this is one lesson. Being a a genuine follower of Christ is about a life of daily self-sacrifice and decisions for Jesus and not a one-time event. Being a genuine follower of Christ is about a life of daily self-sacrifice and decisions for Christ and not a one-time event. I, uh, from my own personal experiences in church uh, over the last 10 years or so, um, I think this is where uh, the rubber hits the road and a lot of uh, churches have done like a disservice to the gospel because we make it about, did you accept Jesus? Yes, I did when I was five. Awesome. So glad to hear it. Welcome to the kingdom. Right? Or we talk about, um, uh, did you say the sinner's prayer? And stuff like that. And again, I'm not saying those times and those people's lives can't be legitimate or not important or not recognized to God. But nowhere in the gospel is that the defining marker of a Christian. Your decision, my decision to receive Christ and deny ourselves that one day and that one time event is not the genuine marker of follower of Christ. It requires daily self-sacrificing decisions for Christ. There's a relational obligation to the follower of Jesus. Okay, so watch this. How do you know I'm married to Denise? Is it because you were there on my my ceremony and you saw this go on my finger? Does that make me married? Or is it the way I treat her that makes me married to her, that you know I'm married to her? 
I could take this off, throw it in the snowbank, and never wear it again, and it would make no difference to, the, to whether I was married to Denise or not, because I would not change how I treat her. Right? There's relational obligations to my wife, and relational obligations for her to me, because we're married. We don't say, well, we're married now. I made a one-time decision to marry you, so now we can treat each other however we want. It's the same with salvation. You make a one-time decision to commit yourself to one person, Jesus Christ. But now there's relational obligations to maintain that relationship. And Jesus says, I would like you, as a follower of mine, because I died for you, I'd like you to die for me. And the way I'd like you to do it is, when you come to these crossroads of life, I'd like you to... Choose my way as a sign of love for me. I think, uh, if, if, I think we've done a disservice in our churches when we make it all about the event and not about a daily self-sacrifice. Second lesson. Genuine followers of Jesus should be able to give daily examples then of self-denial. Right? If we're to make, if we're to, if a disciple of Christ is to show, is to be daily deniers, we should at the end of every day be able to sit down with our spouses and say, how did you have to deny yourself today as a Christian? And you should be able to turn to your spouse and say, I've got two things that happened today. Let me hear about them. I was at work, and uh, I, was, you know, I was at work, and uh, in the back, all the guys were like gossiping and making fun of this person. And I was just, everything in my flesh just wanted to dive in, because what they were saying was true. Like, it was like, and I just wanted to dive in, but I just had to bite my tongue because the Spirit checked me and said, I've got two ways for you. There's a crossroads, which way are you going to go? And so I walked out. Or, um, you know, like, or, you know, in the area of lust, you know, I, I was standing in line up today in, uh, in Tim Hortons, and this, this beautiful woman, like, stood in front of me, and everything in my being was just like, like, trying not to, like, wanted to go there with her in my head. And I was able to think of, you know, remember what Christ says about lust, and I was able to stop it right there and just go his way with my thoughts and purity. Right? We should be able to say these things to our spouses and to our friends about how to daily deny ourselves. If these daily denials are not conscious in our thoughts and we can't say anything, then that's a, that's a check, a check for where we are in our relationship with the Lord. And maybe we don't have one. And we need to reevaluate what we've missed about the gospel. But we should be able to give daily examples of self-denial. And when you do that, you define yourself as hating your life in this world. Lesson three. The decision to serve ourselves or deny ourselves to embrace God's way is ours. <laughs> Again, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that when we are faced with a life of sin, an option for sin, the Spirit comes in and says, I want to lead you away from that. But then he, and he consciously bothers us and bothers us, and then we have to go, am I going to go with God's way or my way? God's way or my way? And then that, but the decision is ours. So he gives us power through the Spirit, but he doesn't give us power to choose. When you're a non-Christian, when you stand with a decision, your only checkpoint is yourself and your own morality. And the conscious God is naturally given in your head, right? Because you still know certain things are wrong. But ultimately, your, your checkpoint is yourself or the way you were raised. But there's no external spirit from God giving you an option for no sin. So again, the decision to serve our Lord is ours. And by serving Him and embracing His ways, we show ultimate love for Him when we, when we embrace His patterns. So we're going to go to communion and then have a time of discussion. I know today was kind of heavy, you know, convicting maybe, and it was for me. I mean, I don't, I don't get out of this 
scot-free every week. <laughs> I'm the first person that God has to speak to. Um, but the thing is, it's in the Word of God, and I can't help that. My job is just to teach you what the Lord wants you to know. But here's the thing. Today, Jesus' invitation to you and to me is to come and die. His invitation to you and me today is to come and die. So when we go into communion, if there's any areas in your life right now that you realize through the sermon that you need to come clean with the Lord, that I would encourage you to do so. And then, and then when you feel that um, you've made those things right with the Lord, then please come up and take communion.